right, good morning, Life Church. It's a, a good day to be alive and worshiping with the people of God. Can you turn that fan off? Because it's going to be blowing my uh, paper everywhere. Thanks. We don't have AC today, so it's on. That's what the, the man on stage, let's <laughs> just uh, as, uh, as awkward as that might have been, that was, that was really good news. So uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, I'm so glad that you guys are here with us today. I get to be the pastor here. Hopefully it'll cool down soon. This building is a blessing. It was a gift to us. Uh, we're a brand new church. We're 10 months old, and, um, and we've got a crazy story. I'd love to tell you more about it. If you are interested in kind of knowing why a 10-month-old church is in a 70-year-old building, there are lots of ways to, uh, to find out. As uh, I believe Jonathan already mentioned, you can fill out that Connect card, and we'd love to follow up with you. Uh, go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to jump right into it. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we're picking up our, our series where we've been the past 10 months, <laughs> ever since we launched. We've been going section by section through this letter to the churches around Ephesus. We believe here at, at Life Church that the Word of God is powerful, that the Word of God is actually divine, and uh, that's the tool that the Spirit of God uses to transform our lives. And so uh, we like going through the Word of God. And, and it's been a fun book. It's been a challenging book. There's like a ton of stuff in the letter to the Ephesians that is like deep and high and like way beyond us. Some of it's really controversial, but I trust that it's been helpful for every single one of you. The last two weeks, and now again today, we've been talking about spiritual warfare, which is one of those weird things that you don't really think about. It's kind of like the matrix. You take the blue pill, everything's great. You take the red pill, and all of a sudden, it's like, holy cow, there's something cosmic going on behind the scenes, and we had no idea. That's what we've been looking at for the last two weeks. We're going to pick it right back up now. If you missed the last two weeks, all of the sermons are online, and you can catch up on our website if you want to. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, would you read on the screen with me if you don't have your Bible? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in, of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Last week we talked about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and these boots that are ready to share the gospel in all seasons and all times. Today I thought we were going to finish the armor. I thought we were just going to knock out the second section, but we're not. Because this past week as I was studying and I was just studying what was going to be the first point about the shield of faith, it just hit me that this is like the biggest deal. And we can't just cruise through faith as if it's just like one point out of three. If we don't get this shield and we go into battle without it, we'll be cut off every time. It is absolutely vital. And the way I want to kind of start out today is just ask if anyone in this room is allergic to poison ivy. Just raise your hands. It's, it's poison ivy season if there is a season. I think that means like you work out in your yard. I am incredibly allergic to poison ivy. 
And as, as some of you know, we, uh, we recently bought a house, and our house, we're just so thankful for it. It's, it's a gift of God. It's on like 1.3 acres of land. And in a lot of ways, it's untamed land. Uh, the guy we bought it from just liked planting stuff. He was obsessed with monkey grass for some reason, which is like impossible to get out of the ground, and it just spreads. And then he had all of these random bushes that were really straggly looking, and awful, just scattered throughout the monkey grass. And so for the past three or four months, all I have done in my free time is pull up monkey grass and bushes because I'm trying to tame this land and turn it into a little paradise, you know. Um, in the last three months, though, of all of this yard work, I have gotten poison ivy three times and like really bad poison ivy. It seems like every time I went outside, I got it. I'd be like picking up bushes and I'm thinking to myself the whole time, I bet there's poison ivy in here and I bet I'm getting it. But I had no idea what it looked like and so I just kept getting it. Finally came to the conclusion like I thought I knew what it was, clearly I did not. Then one day, I was talking to my next door neighbor. She's got a bunch of kids, we've got a bunch of kids and so they're always like, we're just in each other's yards nonstop. And I was showing her my leprosy, <laughs> you know, that was like poison ivy. It was disgusting. Some of you had to, to bear through that, and I appreciate that. I'm covered in it, and I'm like, man, I just get poison ivy every time I'm outside. She said, I, I used to as well. Do you know what it looks like? And I said, no, I, clearly, no. No, I basically am cuddling with it every time I go outside. She's like, let me show you. And so she took me to some poison ivy, and she's like, it's got like three little leaves that come off of one stem. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And, and, then, and then she said, in the top of the stem where these leaves come out of, it's kind of like a reddish color. And red's bad. Like if you see red on a leaf on a stem, you should know that that's not a good thing. And she showed me all these different variations. And I was shocked at like how much of it was just in between our yards. And I'm like, this is why I get it all the time. It's everywhere. And I felt so equipped and I was pumped. I was like, thank you so much. I am now going to look throughout my yard for all the poison ivy. And no joke, poison ivy was everywhere. Everywhere. It was under our hammock that we had just put in. It was by our hose. It was in every single garden. It was next to my grill coming out of our lawn. Okay, it's supposed to be a nice grass. I got my grill. There's literally poison ivy right next. It's next to the rope swing. Even the new grass I had just planted, somehow poison ivy is coming out of that stuff. We are infested, overrun by poison ivy. And I'm like, no wonder I'm getting this every time I go outside. But now, I knew what it was. So I went to Lowe's, and I got that weed killer, and I got one of those things that you pump, and then you spray, and I just went to town. I was the terminator out there, and I was so happy. There was so much joy as I was, like, spraying this poison on the poison. I was like, you will not get me again. And I did, and I knocked it out. Now, it's still, like, it comes back up, so I have to spray it again. But I have not gotten a rash since my conversation with my neighbor. Praise God. I think in a lot of ways, Satan's lies are like poison ivy. Totally pervasive in our culture. We live in a kingdom that is called the kingdom of darkness. He actually rules this kingdom. And so the culture of hell is something that he's always trying to export into the culture of man and the kingdom of man in our culture. And if we're not careful, if we don't know what it looks like, 
uh, we're going to get eaten alive. But his, his lies are in our culture everywhere we look. We can't interact with anyone or anything without coming across him. For example, like this is what the good life looks like, is what he's always putting before us. It's this vision. It's the American dream. This is what it means to thrive and live well in the world. You've got to get a bunch of stuff, and you've got to chase the most attractive partner, and when they get a little bit older, trade that partner in for a younger one, and you've got to have the fanciest cars and live in this neighborhood and all of that kind of stuff. This is what it means to be beautiful. Look, this is what it means to be successful. Chase after that. This is what it means to be important. If you indulge in this pleasure, you will be satisfied. If you get with that partner, you will have value. If you get enough people to like you and follow you and tag you and retweet you, then you'll really matter. On and on the list of lies go in our culture. And then whenever we we buy into one of those lies and he gets us distracted and he gets us off the path and we start trespassing as Paul talks about like God's laid out this path that that you stay in this path and you are going to thrive and you are going to live well in the world. But we trespass and we go outside lines. When we start doing that, Satan starts hurling even more lies at us. He starts saying things like, now that you've sinned, God can't love you. Now that you've stepped outside of his path and his plan, there's no way he wants to have a relationship with you. This is what we talked about last week. God can't love you. God can't use you. God won't forgive you. And so as one author put it, he tries to convince us that setbacks and suffering and even our own sin are signs that we don't belong to God. Any of you ever encountered that lie? When you're going through something hard, that lie that comes in and says, it's because God's not watching. God doesn't care. It's our enemy coming after us. These are the flaming arrows that he loves to fling. And here's the thing, just like poison ivy, most of us go about our day totally oblivious to the fact that like we're grilling hamburgers and, and like our feet, that we're just wearing sandals or we're just barefoot, like we're just coming into contact with this poisonous oil or we're pushing our kids on the swing and we don't even realize we're we're coming into contact with it we go about our day-to-day lives as if everything's fine blue pill stuff when in reality we are being bombarded with flaming arrows it's no wonder that so many of us get tripped up it's no wonder that so many of our lives end up like getting totally distracted and we slip into so much doubt and despair and even disbelief because We're getting stung and we're getting attacked and we don't even know it. So what Paul wants to do is he wants to come in and in this final section of his letter to the church at Ephesus like my neighbor did for me. And he wants to show us what the poison looks like. He wants to describe it for us and and lay it out so that we can spot it. And when we spot it, we can kill it. We can attack it. We can go get our poison just spray the mess out of it. That's what Paul is doing for us right now. Rather than being overtaken like little kids tossed to and fro in the ocean, we might stand firm. And the armor itself that that we just read, we just talked about, is broken up into two groups. We looked at the first group last week. It's the belt of truth. It's the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of readiness. And 
these three pieces of armor to kind of make up this group, and they're unique because they're all things that are, are fastened to us or tied to us. They've become a part of our, our uniform. We go about with them. Look at uh, this slide. You can just see what I'm talking about with this language. Having fastened the belt, having put on the breastplate, having put on the shoes. These are all kind of like past tense preparatory things that we have done. The second group of armor is totally different though. It's not stuff that we've already put on. It's not fastened to our bodies. It's something that we now have to take up. Take up the shield of faith. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. I don't know if you've seen any war movies or you're like into Netflix and you've watched all of like the, the dramatic pieces, the, the, the period pieces about war and stuff. But whenever men are at war and they're back at their camp, they're not like taking sponge baths, okay? They're not hanging out in bathrobes. They've still got their boots on. They've still got their belts on and they've got their like leather breastplate on and they might be sitting by a fire and they might be eating, but they've still got their basic uniform on. But, but as soon as the alarm bell rings and the attack comes in, what do they do? They pick up their armor, they, they grab their, their helmet and they put it on their head and they grab their sword and they grab their shield and now they're ready to engage. And that's kind of the image that, that Paul has in mind here. The first group's like a uniform. It's been fastened to us. It's sort of become a part of us. The second group, though, is the weaponry. This is what we've actually been given so that we can engage in this spiritual battle. It doesn't just give us protection. It gives us the kind of protection that helps us move forward and fight. The first piece of armor that we're supposed to take up is the shield of faith. This is all we're going to focus on today, like I said, because it's so important. Now, in the Roman, um, like, I guess, world, soldiers had shields that were really large. They were rectangular. They could cover the entire front area of the soldier. I have a picture, I think. Um, it wasn't just effective for individual soldiers. As you could see, you could... You could line up side by side and become like an impenetrable force. And as you move forward to try to invade cities or, or fortresses or whatever, like they would be shooting arrows at you, but you would be totally guarded. Paul is saying that our faith is like that kind of shield. It's the weapon that makes us unstoppable. No matter how many darts or arrows the enemy is firing at us, it helps us keep moving forward in the midst of attacks. So the big question is, how does the shield of faith do that? How does the shield of faith make us invincible? It's almost like Mario in the ancient, you know, Mario Nintendo game, Super NES. Like you get that star, and you start running through stuff. Nothing can hurt you. That's what the shield of faith is. How? How does faith make us invincible like that? We got to know what faith is and Really, before, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you three things. That's where we're going to go. Three, three things about faith. But before we do that, I want to show you what faith isn't. Because faith, like a lot of people have really weird views about faith. And this is actually one of the, the ways the devil attacks us. Is he messes with our view of faith. And he gets us to put our faith in wrong things. So then, then we have no shield. We're like going into battle with absolutely no protection. So what it isn't, first... It isn't the end goal. There's kind of this superstitious belief that a lot of really like well-meaning believers 
have bought into that we should have faith in faith. As if faith is like the magic key. And if you just take it into life situations, you can unlock any door. Nothing is impossible if you just have faith. Have you ever heard that? Prosperity preachers like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer, T.D. Jakes, love using this kind of superstitious vision of faith in faith to make a ton of money manipulating people and so that they can buy private jets and cars and all of that kind of stuff. They say that large sums of money that you give equal large sums of faith that you possess. And if you have that kind of faith, God will give you your heart's desires. He'll do whatever you want. It's like this magic, superstitious key, and so many well-meaning believers have bought into this lie. That's why they're flying around in private jets, because people give their money. All you need for that promotion is just a little more faith. All you need for that physical ailment that keeps getting you down is just a little more faith. All you need for that lifestyle that you've always dreamed of, that they're living, it's just a little more faith. This is total garbage, by the way. It's nowhere in scripture. The second really bad idea about faith that Satan loves to get us to believe, especially in our secular humanistic society, is faith in us. And this is going to sound a lot more familiar. You might say, I'd never buy into one of those like prosperity preachers. I'd never believe in faith and faith. But you will absolutely believe in faith in you. This is so pervasive in our culture. It's like what Disney's made of, right? Just believe in yourself. If you don't know where you're supposed to go in life, just look in the puddle of water at your own reflection. And your reflection will tell you, like, look within. I can't wait for Mulan to come out, by the way. I'm really excited about that. This humanistic vision of man is basically that we're, we're these kind of superheroes with all kinds of power and, and wisdom and strength, like somewhere deep within us, and all we have to do is tap into it by believing that it's there. I don't know how to do that, but that's the message of our day. But nothing could be further from the truth, guys, and, and that is good news. See, every single one of us have incredible worth incredible value because we are image bearers of the divine. When God created us out of dust, he said, let's make them in our image. And so every single one of us has intrinsic value and, and worth. We were crafted specially and uniquely loved before the foundations of the world were ever even laid. But in spite of our great worth, what every single one of us knows deep down inside is that we're weak. We're, we're really, really weak. We don't have these minds of power somewhere inside of us or like these reserves of wisdom that we can just tap into if we believe. We're frail. Because of the curse of sin and death, we live these existences of like almost human beings. We need help. And get this, as much as our culture tries to, to push faith in you, one of the most important aspects of our culture right now preaches the exact same thing without even knowing it. 
This is what it means to kind of like interpret your culture. Has anyone ever seen an Avengers movie in the last 10 years? Anybody? Like fans? Some of you aren't into it at all. That's fine. Some of you are way too into it. That's fine as well. Like that, that's your thing. But either way, the storyline of every single one of those Avengers movies is essentially the same. That there are forces of darkness that are powerful and strong and evil, and that if we're left to ourselves, we have no hope. That's the story of every Avengers film. And so we need gods from other planets, and we need like these, I don't know, scientifically enhanced human beings and mutated creatures to come and fight for us. In other words, in spite of Disney's efforts to convince us that we have all the wisdom and power and strength we need within us, their most successful films, and really the most successful films of all time, tell us what we already know, that we need someone to save us. This is really good news because if we're supposed to have faith in ourselves, then when we don't have the answers and when we don't have the power, the direction, the wisdom, the will, the strength to keep going amidst the trials, we won't have anything to protect us. So our enemy tries to trick us into putting our faith in faith, which is total superstition, or put our faith in ourselves, which basically assumes that we're superheroes and he does that so that when the alarm bells go off and he brings the attacks, we won't have anything to take into battle. Spot his lies. See them. Know that poison ivy is creeping up your leg and cut it out. So what is real faith? What is Paul talking about here that makes us so invincible and so immune to the devil's lies? Let's find out. Three things we need to know about faith. First, faith is rest. There's a famous missionary uh, a few decades ago named John Patton. He was translating scripture in the South Pacific. And in his process and building relationships with all of these islanders, he found out that they had no word for faith. And so he's trying to explain the gospel to them, and he can't do it because it like hinges on faith. You know, and he, he keeps getting to that point of like, it's by by grace, through faith, put your faith in Jesus. He had nothing to say to him, and he's trying to translate scripture, and there's no word for faith until one day one of the islanders comes and just like plops down in his chair, and he's like, oh, it feels so good to rest all of my weight on this chair. And Patton jumps up, and he's like, that's it. That's faith. It's, it's when you rest all of your weight in something else. And, and so he was able to translate scripture and he was able to share the gospel with all of these islanders so that many believed. This is a, a really solid working definition of faith. Faith is resting all of our weight in who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised to do. That's what faith is. It's laying a hold of all his promises and all his resources along with who he says you are in Jesus, and then living out of that reality. That's what the shield of faith is. Guys, do you know how many promises there are in Scripture that God has made and God will keep? 5,467 promises that we can rest in because of who God is. In other words, since God is trustworthy and since he's powerful and since he's faithful, since he's unchanging 
every single one of those 5,400 promises will be carried out. And you can bank your life on it. You can put the entire weight of your life on his promises. We don't have time to look at all 5,400 of them, but let's just look back at the first few verses of this letter and see some of them there. Paul says, in Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I don't actually have a slide for this. I'm sorry. Chosen before the foundations of the world were ever laid, adopted into the family of God. We have been redeemed and forgiven by the death of Christ on our behalf. We have been sealed with the very spirit of God as a mark of a future glory and a future inheritance. On top of that, God has lavished his grace upon us, like just dumped it out. He didn't hold it back. He just dumped his grace out on us, made us, made his intentions known to us so his will isn't hidden. We can know what the will of God is. That's incredible. He's invited us to join him in his reconciling, restoring plan in the world. So in light of all of that, who God is and who God says we are, what are a couple promises that we can rest on? from those few verses. Well, for starters, since God loved us and chose us before the foundations of the world were ever laid, before any of us could do anything cool or anything bad, which means before we could do anything to merit his love and before we could do anything to lose his love, he loved us. And that means his love for us doesn't hinge on us. And here's the promise. Nothing will ever take us away from his love. Romans chapter 8. That's a promise you can rest your entire life on. No matter how bad you have been, no matter how dark your past is, no matter what you were doing last night, you cannot be taken from the love of God because it doesn't hinge on you. It hinges on his love that existed before the world was created and it was secured by the death of his son on the cross. Is that good news? Here's another one. Since God has made us sons and daughters in his family, and since he is powerful and sovereign, we can rest in the fact that everything that we do in this life, everything that we experience in this life, whether it's good or it's evil, will be used for our good and for his glory. Again, that's Romans 8. That's a promise you can take to the bank, no matter how bad it is, no matter what some evil person has done to wrong you. The promise is that God is going to use it for your glory. That's crazy, but that's a promise that he will carry out. Amen? Amen? Here's another one. Since God lavished his grace on us so much so that he's even marked us with his spirit, he sealed us like a king sealed letters with his spirit. We're his. We can now rest in the fact that we have everything we need to live this life and live it well. Even when we face temptation, even when we face suffering and affliction, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us, so we're equipped to face those things with joy. But not only that, since we've been sealed, now we have this promise that no matter what's going on in this life, we have a future glory and a future inheritance that outweighs all of it. That's a great, great promise that gives us hope even in the darkest situations. I could go on and on and on. But what you and I need to understand from just these opening verses, just a few of the 5,400 promises in Scripture, is that 
Christ's promises, God's promises to us in Christ are all-encompassing. They're all-encompassing and they're endless, which means there is not an area of your life that falls outside of the scope of one of his promises. And they're never going to come to an end. That is good news. As the old hymn writer once said, what more can he say than to you he has already said? In other words, he can't even tell you any more about what he's done for you because what he's done is beyond imagination. He can't do anything more. He didn't hold anything back. That's the shield of faith, and so we rest in it. It's a perspective that, that allows us to see our lives through the lens of eternity. It allows us to see our reality through, through God's eyes, to see things as they really are, that he is working them together for our good. That leads us to the second thing we need to understand about faith, as faith is action. Resting in the promises of God is not a passive activity. I know when I say faith is rest, like our initial reaction is like, sweet, I'm going to go sit on a couch, I'm going to get a bag of potato chips, and like, God, do your thing. <laughs> you know, I'm resting in the promises. But faith is actually application. It's action. It requires us doing something with the truths that we already believe. Faith is the ability to make applications of all of those promises. So when the devil comes at us with lies, we take those promises and then we use them. And we use them to fight back. It's, it's action. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, put it, and I think I have a slide for this. Yes, faith is the ability to apply quickly what we believe to what the devil is throwing at us. It always applies the truth. It's always active. So when the devil comes at us with all these lies, and man, does he do that all the time. All of his tricks and all of his manipulation, faith helps us take what we know to be true and apply it directly to those lies. For example, this past week I spoke uh, at a luncheon uptown for a couple hundred uh, businessmen in the city and I raised some questions, you know, shared some stories, pointed people to Christ, which is what preachers are supposed to do. And as soon as I got off that stage and I, and I walked back to my seat, I started to feel the attacks. That was pointless. What a waste of time. Oh, Ben, no one was listening. No one cared. You didn't change anything. You're, you're not good enough. You're not eloquent enough. You're not old enough. And on and on and on the lies went. And I know the lies that he tries to use to make me doubt. I just know it. After 10 years of doing this thing, I know what he throws at me. But the only way for me to combat the devil in that moment, because the lies don't get easier to hear. And, and it's not like all of a sudden I can just say like, yeah, you, that's not true. Like I, he's tapping into the doubt that's already there, as we saw last week. He's tapping into the flesh of weakness and frailty and insecurity that we already have as human beings. So the only way for me to combat the devil when he comes and lies to me is to take the promises that I know to be true in my head and say, no way, man. And I just start attacking his lies with what I know to be true. 
with promises that God has given to me, that God is mighty to save, not me. It doesn't hinge on me. It doesn't hinge on my eloquence. It doesn't hinge on my appearance or my age. God is mighty to save, and I've got a shield in front of me, and I'm extinguishing a fiery dart. Where God's word is alive, that's a promise. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is powerful enough to go straight to the heart and to pierce, and to transform, and to change. And and when his word is preached, as we saw last week, it never returns to him void. That's a promise. And so I know in my moment of weakness, man, I, I get my shield out, and it is active, and we are talking to each other. And it's a battle, and I can't see him, but man, I hear his lies, and I go back after him with reality. This is who God is. This is who he says he is. This is who he says I am. This is what he's done, and this is what he's promised to do. And man, I extinguish those arrows. That's what you get to do as well. It's a shield that makes you invincible. It's action. It's active. Faith is the quick application of the truths that you believe. Even when you can't see it, even when you have no idea how God's going to do it, you apply it. See, in our moments of weakness, in our moments of doubt, in our moments of temptation, in our moments of despair, faith points us back to God. It doesn't point us to faith. It doesn't point us to ourselves. If it did that, man, I'd be defeated in a second. It points us back to him. So I love this. When the devil comes and tells us we're not strong enough to stand in battle, you know what faith does? Faith as a shield points us to the one who is strong enough and who's given us a spirit who makes us stand. When our enemy comes and tells us that we're going in the wrong direction, that we're wasting our lives and that we're, we're, we're getting the laughing stock of our family and we'll never amount to anything, faith comes up as a shield and reminds us that God has planned every step of our lives. And he's got a plan for you and a purpose for you. When the forces of darkness lie and say that God doesn't hear us when we pray, faith comes as a shield. We take it up as a shield and remind ourselves and the devil that Jesus is at the right hand of God at this moment praying for us. And the spirit who dwells in us, as Romans 8 says, is also interceding on behalf of us. So even when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, God is praying to himself for us. That's a shield. The promises of God are always yes and amen because God is a faithful rock. You can stand firm on him. And when we take those things into battle, guys, nothing can stop us. Amen? That leads to the final thing we need to know about faith, and this is probably my favorite one, and that is faith is communal. Faith is meant to be lived out in community. It's not just individual. It's an action that grows stronger when we're together. We already saw this principle played out in the Roman army, right? Those shields were effective for every single individual, but they grew in effectiveness and they grew in strength when they were lined up side by side and they were together as one. That's what made them unstoppable. 
Paul talked about this communal faith in chapter 4. You might remember when he said this is one of the things that binds us together, that we have one faith. So you don't have a faith, and 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 we're all just kind of like individuals doing this thing, and we get together on Sunday morning. It's like, hey, friend, how's it going, man? Did you watch that, you know, soccer game last week? Like, yeah, USA, you know. Um, No, we have one faith. And when we get together, we line up in formation. So we do this every single week, and we try to do it multiple times a week to line up into formation so that we can go after this thing together. That's why later on the author of Hebrews would say in chapter 10, guys, don't neglect to meet with each other, because when you neglect to meet with each other, your faith just starts to dissipate. You felt that? You ever felt that when you, like, you, you, you aren't meeting together with your, your brothers and sisters in Christ? You're like, why don't I love God anymore? <laughs> why, is, why is it so cold now? I don't get it. It's because we were made to do this together, not as lone rangers. Here's another amazing thing. This is why I love this so much. Sometimes your faith is going to be too weak to pick up the shield. Like sometimes the situation that you're facing is too much. Sometimes the struggle, the temptation, the sin that you're trying to overcome is something that you have no power over. Sometimes you feel hopeless and discouraged. It's in those times of weakness and doubt and despair that every single one of us get to come around you and put our shields in front of you and put our shields over you and say, you're not in this alone. It's okay to feel weak. We've got you. The devil's not gonna get you with his lies, not on our watch, and we put our shields over you. You do that for me. I do that for you. Even on Sunday mornings, guys, we're not going through motions here today. Like, church is not something you do. Church is who we are. It's family. And so when we get together as family, we know that there are people in our midst who are down and who are hopeless and who are trying to put on a smile but have nothing together. And this is our opportunity to strengthen them, to give them courage, encourage them, to build them up, to to pick them up and carry them, to cover them with maybe a faith that is strong in our own lives at this moment. We do that in the way that we sing. We do that in the way that we hear the word preached. We do it in the way that we pray. We do it in the way that we talk with honesty. How are you doing today? Man, I am struggling. (laughs) This past week was awful. I lost my job. My marriage is crumbling. I I just got a, a, a prognosis from my doctor that's not good. And we're honest with each other. That's a good thing. So then... Everyone around us can, can pray together. You can even pray together outside of our, our liturgical order. There are some times when I come to church and I'm not feeling it, guys. But usually by the time I get on a stage, the Holy Spirit has used some of you to build me up. So I'm ready. My dad calls me every single Sunday morning to pray with me because I need it. Sometimes I'm not up to the task. Sometimes you walk in and you're singing songs. You're like, man, I don't feel a thing. But you see Bobby raising his hands. You see Palma clapping. You see Letitia. And you're like, okay, I remember again. I remember reality. This is what's true. And we do it together. This is what Hebrews 11 and 12 are all about. 
Let me read it with you. What more shall I say? This is like, it's known as the hall of faith. Like he's just gone through all these people and all of their faith. This is the end of it. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of guys like Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, who conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness because became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Some were flogged. Some were mocked, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Some were stoned. Some were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. In other words, here's the thing. There's like two types of Christians in this hall of faith. There's one type of Christian that had all this power and all this strength. And, you know, you read about David and he killed Goliath and he cut that dude's head off and he killed lions and Samson and, and all of this stuff. But there were other Christians who were sawn in too were tortured, who didn't get the power. And then look at what chapter 12 says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him also endured torture and abandonment and suffering on the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, if you want to throw off sin and every other weight that keeps you down, if you want to attack Satan's arrows of lies that are coming at you, you don't just have this church family right here. You've got all of these men and women who span 2,000 years and beyond who have lived these lives of faith, and you get to see that God was God then, and God is still God now. He will be faithful. And so we take on these shields, not just of today, but of thousands of years of people who have been faithful and who have obeyed and trusted in God. That makes us invincible. This is actually why Carolyn and I named our son Nicholas Ridley, our six-year-old boys. Nicholas Ridley Davy, it's a cool name, but um, Nicholas Ridley was actually one of the Oxford martyrs, and it's one of my favorite stories in church history. He was killed under the reign of Bloody Mary in, I think, like 1855. I'm, I'm bad at years, but um, it's a really famous story because there, there are three guys, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley, and um, I can never remember the third guy's name. Um, and, and they go to be burned in, uh, burned alive in, in the city square. And these are like Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and the other guy, Cramner. That's who it is, Cramner. They're, um, they're theological giants. They're pastors. They're bishops. And Mary hates them. And so she's just wiping out Protestants across the kingdom. And so these guys are like some of the first. And as they're there, they're, they're tied to the pyre of wood. They're about to be burned. Hugh Latimer just has this like famous line that he says to Nicholas Ridley, and it's so profound. I want to get it tattooed like all over my body. Um, 
But he says this. He says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Because I think Master Ridley was struggling. He was younger. He was probably really scared. And he needed a pep talk. And so he says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We will this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. Latimer died quickly, but Ridley wasn't lucky. His, his wood was, was green. It was wet. It didn't burn like it was supposed to. And so his brother-in-law tried to help speed up the process, but it just made him burn the lower parts more. Guards attached pockets of gunpowder to try to speed up the process, but that didn't even help it. And so in the end, Nicholas Ridley died this slow and agonizing death for his faith and his witness. And guys, as gruesome as that story is, there, there are, jeez, tens of thousands in church history that are more gruesome than that. I love it because it's a picture of this kind of unwavering faith and courage and peace and comfort in the midst of death. And I want that for my own life, and I want it for my son's life, too, because his world is going to be so different from mine. This story from hundreds of years ago challenges me. It inspires me because if I'm really being honest, more often than not, I don't feel that kind of courage and boldness. More often than not, I feel like a coward. I don't want to lose my reputation. I have this paralyzing fear and intense desire for self-preservation. I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to be flogged. I don't want to be thrown into prison. I just want to save my own skin. Anybody else like that out there? You with me? <laughs> like Christians aren't called to be masochists, okay? It's okay to not want to be suffering. It's okay to not want to be burnt alive. So Latimer's words resound in my mind, even though I got nothing like that in America. I got all kinds of freedom. We, we shouldn't have like a persecution complex, okay? We're doing all right. We don't have AC, but other than that, we're, we're okay today, right? But I hear his words resounding in my mind, Ben, be of good courage. Ben, play the man. Ben, you can do it. You might be in the face of the, the top two most unreached pockets in the state. You might be in the face of, a, of an ever-growing secular culture that doesn't really like you, but God is faithful. So faith is communal. Not just in our context, but man, we've got thousands of years. So read biography, read church history. Nothing will inspire you more than that outside of the word of God. This is what faith does. It builds, comforts, encourages so that every single one of us can stand firm even when the ground around us feels like it's shaking. So friends, take up your shields today. Rest in the promises of God. Use them as weapons when the devil tries to manipulate you and trick you and lie to you. And do it with your family and community as one. So that in all of this, we might stand firm. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the 5,400 some promises that you've given us in it. That are sure. That we can rest in. 
and used to combat every lie that the devil throws at us. Would you help us to do that even today? I pray for my brother and sister who, who's struggling today, who, who have a failing faith today because life is really hard. Would you help them to be honest about it with someone before they leave so that we can build them up, strengthen them, put our shields around them? Would you help us stand firm as your church in this city for your glory? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.